Hello, everybody, and welcome to my spoiler review for Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, which appears to be taking the box office by storm. I'll have coverage on all of that tomorrow on Charts with Dan. But let's talk about the movie right now. I like doing spoiler reviews for movies like this because there was so much that I couldn't talk about in my regular review for the film because of where the plot goes and different things like that. So let's jump right into it right away. And the first thing really that I've noticed that I think this movie could have done better is to market that it was a part one. Now, I knew that it was a part one because even when they announced that they were going to do sequels, they said that there was going to be two. There was going to be, at that time, uh, Across the Spider-Verse Part 1 and Across the Spider-Verse Part 2. Back in December 2021, at the end of the first look uh, trailer that was released, it said Part 1, but then they dropped that from the title and it just became Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. And from the reaction that I've seen uh, in the comment section on my reviews and in social media and elsewhere, there were a lot of people who did not know going in that it was going to be a cliffhanger, uh, that you were going to have to come back for the next part of the story. I was even told that I'd spoiled the movie because they said, well, you spoiled that it was a part one. I I didn't really, but it does seem like the messaging on the studio's part could have been better to help manage audience expectations. Having said that, though, it seems that audiences really like this movie. Of course, the critical reviews were strong. Audience scores have been very strong. Box office, it's been one of those movies where... Every time they report the number, the estimated number goes up from the last one, which means that word of mouth is good. Uh, So it seems like a minor issue, but uh, when I'm looking at the movie overall, it does seem like that's something they could have done just a little bit better. And many of the same people that were displeased to find out that this was a to-be-continued type film have said that the reason that they don't like it is because it's not a complete movie. And I said in my non-spoiler review that I actually thought that it was narratively satisfying because I do think you can track the progress of the characters in this movie from the beginning to the end of this specific movie while still being part of a larger story that's going to resolve in the next movie. And I couldn't really go into a lot of detail uh, without going into spoilers, but I can get a little bit more into detail now and explain why I don't think this is just a cheap cliffhanger or a narratively unsatisfying movie in the same way that I didn't think that the first Dune was a narratively unsatisfying movie, because I think that you were tracking the character of Paul from where he is at the beginning of that film to where he is at the end of that film is a very important progression for his character, and you are leaving him at a very important uh, part of his character development, and it makes sense if you're going to have a stopping point in the narrative to do it there. I think that they did those as well in Lord of the Rings. Everybody was kind of on their own journey uh, throughout those films, and you would end those journeys at specific crossroads for those characters. And I think that that's exactly where you are in this movie, both with the character of Miles and with the character of Gwen. For Miles, the movie begins as a story about finding his place in the world, his sense of belonging. He wants to fit into that mold of being Spider-Man. He's desperate to join Miguel's group. It's basically him looking at all all of these other spider people that he's met and saying, well, how can I be one of them? But at the same time, he's also learning the costs of being Spider-Man. He is becoming more distant from his parents because him being Spider-Man is taking him away from responsibilities. They can tell he's distracted. He is kind of going down that typical narrative road of being Spider-Man where you have to choose between family and friends and you have to sacrifice things. And for Miles, this movie is all about coming to the realization point that he doesn't have to do that. 
and is kind of brought up as a negative uh, by Miguel when he says that Miles is an anomaly. He was never supposed to be Spider-Man. Um, you know, his world already had a Spider-Man, and it's his fault that he died, and so he'll never belong to the group. And what that does to me is it frees Miles up from feeling like he has to do all these things or that fate has all these things in store for him. That's why he says he's going to go his own way at the end because he understands now that he doesn't actually want to be in this group and just be one of these spider people because that means that he's locked in to certain things. And so his journey in this film is one of looking for a sense of belonging and feeling like he has to sacrifice what he wants to getting to a point where he unshackles himself from all of that and feels the freedom to kind of do whatever he feels like doing. And then, of course, the irony of that is that by the time he can tell his mom who he actually is, he's now in a reality where nobody knows who Spider-Man is, where Spider-Man has never existed. And that is more of a dramatic turn as far as the narrative goes. But from a personal storyline standpoint, I think that Miles has a very distinct journey in this film from beginning to end, and we're going to pick up in the next movie from this point in the narrative. It's very similar with Gwen. When we first meet Gwen, the opening scene of the movie, she's talking about how she doesn't want to be in a band. She doesn't want to share her life with people because all that's ever brought her is pain and heartache, and she loses them. They die, or, or you know, Miles is in a, a different dimension. Her journey is from rejecting that idea at the beginning to at the end literally putting the band back together and understanding the value of friendship and the value of sharing a burden with somebody and the value of accepting help her narrative is going to pick up in the second movie from that point in her character development and I think the thing that's really interesting and and one of the things that I like about the script is that she and Miles are on two similar journeys but in many ways they're also opposite journeys because Miles's journey is about learning the power of the self and Gwen's journey is about learning the importance of the group and when you look at them kind of individually I think that those arcs are really well drawn I think part of the issue may be that there's also so much else going on plot wise universe wise world building even though it's two hours and 20 minutes long there's still a lot that has to fit into that runtime. Uh, but this is very much a movie that I will defend on a story level. It is half a movie in the sense that you are going to resolve the overall narrative in the next one. But I don't think that it is an incomplete movie when it comes to the story arcs for its main characters. So story-wise, I think the movie is pretty strong, and technically, I think that this is an absolute masterwork of animation. The mixture of animation styles is great. Gwen's universe is beautiful. The way that she looks subtly different when she's in her own universe, how the background is that constantly shifting watercolor feel. Then you have the look of Hobie, which is that 70s, 80s UK punk aesthetic, that sort of grimy Sex Pistols clash poster plastered on a brick wall feel you have the parchment and pencil look of the vulture that they're fighting at the beginning of the film that very da vinci sketch look there's just so much depth to this movie and i can't wait to get it at home where i can just pause you know almost each frame and really look at all the little jokes and easter eggs and little things that are buried in there Somebody I did not give any credit to in my non-spoiler review and who I should have is Daniel Pemberton, who wrote the score for the film, because not only is the music fantastic, it covers 
so many different feels and genres. You have the Indian type music in the Moombatan sequence of the film. You have the techno type music that's a bit of a carryover from the last film that also has this sort of a hip hop feel to it. This kind of a merging of these two styles. Daniel Pemberton's kind of a journeyman composer in that he does a lot of different movies. And so I don't think he's appreciated as much as a composer like maybe a Michael Giacchino or, you know, to go way back at John Williams, who kind of works a little grander and maybe a little less frequently. Uh, but this, I think, was Daniel Pemberton's best score ever. And I hope that it stays on the radar for something like Academy Awards consideration at the end of the year, because I think it deserves it just for the sheer breadth of it. However, something related a little bit to the music that has been an issue for some folks and actually was a small issue for me the first time I saw the movie and a much larger issue for me the second time I saw the movie was the sound mix. And when I saw the film the first time, it was in a um, Cinemark XD theater. It's their premium large format or PLF screen. So it's not an IMAX theater, uh, but it does have sort of the enhanced picture, enhanced sound. Uh, and even then I found, uh, particularly Gwen's um, opening monologue, which is voiceover while she's playing the drums, I was struggling to hear what she said. And I thought that, you know, almost like there was a, a speaker that was out in the theater. I'm like, oh no, are we going to have to, you know, go tell somebody and start the movie over? But then once we got out of that opening sequence and we got into the movie, I could hear things much better. Uh, and so I just thought, well, that, okay, I guess that was a weird mixing choice on that one sequence. Uh, but today, when I went to see it, yesterday, as you're watching this video, again, I went to my local IMAX theater, and I actually thought that the sound mix was appreciably worse. Not only did I have trouble hearing Gwen's dialogue in the opening scene, I had trouble pulling the dialogue out of any action scene with sound effects or music. It was very difficult to understand what people were saying. I couldn't understand Gwen's uh, monologue at the end, including the last line of the movie. And so I can say, having sat in two different kinds of theaters, that there is something going on with the sound mix. And this is something that I've seen reported on social media in the comments section on, on uh, my videos as well. Uh, not only different formats, but also different countries. I've seen, uh, you know, in, uh, the, I think, the Chinese market uh, and in other markets as well, people have said that they are having trouble hearing the dialogue. So I, I think what may have happened is that the movie was mixed. Of course, you know, if you're Sony, you're mixing in a theater that is state-of-the-art. Something in that mix was obviously lost when you send it out to a bunch of other theaters that maybe have different settings or maybe don't have a setup that's quite as sophisticated. Somewhat similar to um, Game of Thrones. If you remember the last season of Game of Thrones, particularly that long night battle scene at Winterfell, uh, people were saying, watching at home, that they couldn't see what was happening. And I think what happened there is that they were calibrating the picture on, you know, the advanced equipment, not thinking about things like how it's going to look when it's compressed for streaming or how when you're watching at home, it may not be the optimal lighting experience that you have when you're doing color correction and so people at home complain that they couldn't see the show I think it's a version of that and if I'm Sony I think perhaps it's time to put some kind of a guardrail in uh, perhaps some kind of a quality check maybe different settings maybe take it to a different theater to see okay yeah it sounds great on the mixing stage but when I send this out to a Cinemark or an AMC theater are people going to be able to hear this mix because something that maybe seems subtle on a really high-end setup could in fact be a little bit more unintelligible for people 
in the theater system at large. So let's talk a little bit about Miguel O'Hara, voiced by Oscar Isaac, also known as Spider-Man 2099. He begins the film as an ally. He ends the film as somewhat of a, he's definitely an antagonist, but you kind of understand where he's coming from. But this is a character where I think we don't quite know everything about him just yet. First of all, I'm skeptical of his origin story. He claims that he replaced a murdered version of himself and then tried to live a happy life only for an anomaly to come in and destroy that universe. And that's definitely sad, but my question is, was he the Uncle Ben in that universe? Because if he was the Uncle Ben, then that means that there must have been a Spider-Man, unless I missed the explanation. I don't think they really singled out who that Spider-Man was supposed to have been. And obviously, apart from anything having to do with the comic book origins, you see that he injects himself with some kind of a liquid. I think it means that he is not a Spider-Man in the classical sense of everybody else. And there was also in the background of his lab, there was like a, a body that was like, you know, strung up like this, that it looked like there some kind of experimentation had been done on. Um, it was out in the open, so it didn't seem like it was something that was being hidden. But for me, it's like, what's going on there? And is could this be a case where we have a bit of an unreliable narrator? Is he much more of a straightforward villain than we've been led to believe? Or is he just a guy who's out there trying to protect the multiverse? But I think that there's definitely some stuff that we don't quite know about him just yet. I do have to say, though, he has one of my favorite sort of F.U. lines that I've heard in, in quite some time, uh, which is when uh, Peter B. Parker says he's going to head home and Mikkel says, I've had the right amount of you. I think that that's I'm going to start using that instead of saying, like, you know what, go away. I'm sick of you. Just say, you know what? Fine. I've had the right amount of you today. Speaking of the multiverse, which is what Miguel O'Hara seems to be protecting, the multiverse itself looked very much the same as the multiverse that we saw in Loki, that kind of tree with all of the different branches. I think this speaks to the fact that there are multiple, perhaps, multiversal guardians. Miguel is basically doing the same thing as the TVA, although kind of in reverse. He's, he's supposedly trying to help alternate timelines from being destroyed by anomalies instead of destroying alternate timelines in order to keep this one master timeline going. And, you know, it really does seem like they are blurring the lines even more, particularly in the Spider-Verse between Sony Marvel and Disney Marvel and where those are all going to meet. Of course, you had the archive footage that we saw of Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire with the death of Captain Stacy and the death of Uncle Ben. We had Donald Glover's Prowler. That was a cameo that I never saw coming, uh, which was great, which ties into Tom Holland's Spider-Man and the MCU version um, there's a name drop, of course, for Doctor Strange, and it's really got me wondering who exactly is going to be in this next movie. Are we going to see some kind of a reunion of these Spider-Men, meaning um, Holland, Maguire, Garfield, and also Miles Morales? Are we going to see Venom? Because we saw Mrs. Chen in this movie. You know, could we get a, a team-up or a combo or something of all of the Spider-Verse characters that we've met so far? That might be cool. It might be too much of a good thing. Part of me is just like, you know what? You did it in No Way Home. It worked great. Let Sleeping Dogs Lie. Don't try it again. I, I don't know. I'm very split. But I was also very kind of ambivalent on the idea of Garfield and Maguire coming back in No Way Home. And it worked really well. 
There were also so many other versions of Spider-Man. I want to know about that T-Rex version. Can we go to T-Rex Spider-World? Even the Insomniac version, and I, and I had kind of clocked that he was in it, the, the, the PlayStation version of Spider-Man, um, which that's one of the few games that I've actually sat down and played literally from 0% to 100%. Not just that game, but also Miles Morales, and I may have to upgrade my system uh, for the new Spider-Man game that's coming out later this year because I love those Spider-Man video games. Uh, but the second time I watched it, I even noticed they had a little name card that came up that said Insomniac Spider-Man, which is the publisher who does the game. Um, so yes, a little bit of synergy and cross-promotion from Sony there, uh, but also cool for me as a video game fan to see that version of Spider-Man also in the film. And with the multiverse, we also get this wrinkle with Miles as far as whether or not he is a true Spider-Man. Because Miguel obviously doesn't think that he is. He thinks that he stole that power, that it belonged to somebody else on Earth-42 who was supposed to get it. But also, I think it's almost sort of a meta-commentary on how a lot of fans reacted to the introduction of Miles Morales all those years ago, or even maybe when they were doing the first Into the Spider-Verse movie, which is a rejection of him saying like, well, you're not Peter Parker. You're not Spider-Man. You shouldn't have these powers. There's only one Spider-Man and it's not you. So I wonder how much of that fed into this narrative as far as breaking the canon um, and, and kind of diverging away from the way that events are supposed to be. But what I like about it is that, you know, I, I mentioned in my non-spoiler review that they do traffic in the themes of being Spider-Man, but I thought in some very fresh and innovative ways. What I meant by that is that you are doing that with Miles, but you've also introduced this wrinkle of sort of this thing that I think that Miguel meant it to be kind of a... Um, something that was going to shut him down, this idea that like, well, you're an anomaly. You're not even supposed to be Spider-Man. I think that empowers Miles at this point to say like, you know what? You're right. I'm not supposed to be Spider-Man, which means that your rules, the rules of what's supposed to happen to me and what's supposed to happen to loved ones, that a captain's supposed to die and you're sitting there telling me that I have to let my dad die in order to be Spider-Man. Well, you know what? According to you, I'm not really Spider-Man. So I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to do what I want to do. I think that that's a really interesting perspective to take with Miles, and it gives him some freedom as this version of Spider-Man to do things that other versions of Spider-Man maybe don't get the chance to do. And I'm really excited about exploring those possibilities in the next movie. And there was also kind of a heartbreaking thing brought up, which is that Miles becoming Spider-Man is what led to the death of his universe as Spider-Man. And Miguel basically says, like, well, the only reason that Peter Parker or died in your universe is that you were distracting him. He wasn't supposed to die. He was supposed to stop the collider. The spot never would have been created. And all of this is your fault. And, you know, when you say something like that, I think that you have to be able to go back and look at the original film and say, well, does that make sense? And I went back and looked at that sequence. And I think it's one of those retcons that it fits. The only reason that Miles is down there in the subway where he initially runs into Spider-Man uh, fighting a Green Goblin is because he's looking for the spider, because he's already been bitten and yes this does lead peter to save miles and then talk to him and then realize that miles also has the spider sense and that they share something
something in common. And so he does spend time talking to him. And then he goes up to stop the Collider. And right before he's able to stop it is when he gets attacked, which means that the Collider is actually activated. And that does lead to the death of Peter. So yes, it does seem like if Miles weren't bitten by the spider, then things would have happened very differently. And Peter would have stopped that Collider from going off. And I liked how Miles's origin and Peter's death also played into the creation of the spot who was voiced by Jason Schwartzman, who started out as this sort of comical villain and then made this transition into a genuinely threatening foe, largely because he's able to access the multiverse and can really cause a lot of disruptions. And he's tied directly to Miles. His experiments resulted in Miles becoming Spider-Man. Miles is indirectly responsible for his origin. And then crucially, it's really Miles making fun of him in this movie that drives him even further. If he had just had a little bit of compassion and a little bit of understanding for what the spot was going through, then perhaps he wouldn't have been driven to say like, well, you know what, I am, I'm, you know what, I'm going to become the worst supervillain ever because I'm going to show you that I'm worthy of you. You're treating me like a joke when it's your fault that I'm the way that I am. And this is something that is kind of a recurrent thing with all other Spider-Men is the idea of hubris. The idea of taking a criminal lightly and then having to deal with the consequences. That's usually how Uncle Ben dies, is Spider-Man saying like, hey, it's not my problem. And then the butterfly effect is that's the robber who goes on to shoot Uncle Ben. Here you have Miles' version of Spider-Man saying like, well, you know, you're a joke and I'm going to treat you like a joke. And now here we are. We have a very serious crisis that has to be dealt with. I think that these are both clever ways to tie the saga together, uh, but you're not bending over backwards so much that it seems implausible. It really does feel like the writers of this movie sat down and said, um, we're going to go back through the first film and find interesting and fun ways to tie it to the second film. And not just between two films in this franchise, I love that this movie connects the entirety of Spider-Man media together in this web, for lack of a better word, with this idea of canon events, which are things that are shared in common with every version of Spider-Man, from the comic books to the video games to the movies. First of all, it justifies continuing to make new versions of Spider-Man over the years and just say like, well, this is this version of that story, and they all sort of coexist in the Spider-Verse. But at the same time, it reinforces one of my favorite scenes in Spider-Man No Way Home, which is that rooftop discussion when Tom Holland's Peter Parker first meets Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield, and they all realize that they share these things in common. She told me that was great power comes great responsibility wait what how do you know that uncle ben said it the day he died that's basically the canon event in each of their lives and they're realizing that in real time and it really does build this entire spider universe i was i was very kind of suspicious about whether they'd be able to pull this off and i think they're pulling it off beautifully I even love the little things like the nod to Doc Ock when the spot says the power of the multiverse in the palm of my hand. The power of the sun in the palm of my hand. Of course, you had J.K. Simmons as J. Jonah Jameson in pretty much every universe, including the Lego Spider-Man dimension, and that's a movie I wouldn't mind seeing. And then Moombatan was such a great idea to fold in Spider-Man India, first of all, on an economic level, as the Chinese market wanes, it's a great idea to include India in a big movie like this and, and pretty easy to market the film in that country. But I also love the culture-specific jokes about chai tea and you're basically saying tea tea uh, and even the spot saying, well, I'm on a journey of 
self-discovery and Pavitra saying, don't eat, love, pray me. That's a, that's a Western cliche. That's just, that's a funny joke. That's a funny joke for that dimension. And again, this was written so smartly. It's not just like, oh, let's throw India in there uh, just kind of cynically to sell it to that market. There was some real meaning behind that and some actual effort into making that a meaningful part of the movie. Also, as a comics reader who came of age during the Clone Saga, I have to admit I got a lot of laughter out of the tortured, somewhat dim Ben Riley, who is a much reviled comic book character of his era. I think this shows a really good grasp on the creative end of the Spider fans and their feelings about different characters over the years, because I think to maybe a younger Spider-Man fan, um, ben Riley is just a funny character in the movie, and you know he's kind of emo. And uh, Andy Samberg did the voice, and he does really good voice work. But then for people that were reading that in the '90s, and I I hated that reveal when they were doing the Clone Saga and the whole Ben Riley thing, and a lot of readers felt the same way. That's just a self awareness on the part of the writers of this film saying we know the fan base for this film, and that a certain number of them are going to remember Ben Riley and probably not like him very much, and so we're gonna have a little fun in his expense here. So as everybody knows now, we do leave on a cliffhanger and I think that there's some really interesting possibilities as we go into Beyond the Spider-Verse next year. I think a lot of people clocked what was going to happen with Miles when they saw on the machine it said Destination Locked Earth 42 because it does the DNA scan. The spider that bit Miles was from Earth 42, not from Miles' home dimension. And so I think a lot of people are like, oh, well, that's where he's going to be sent. I didn't pick up on that right away. For me, when I realized that something was different and it was a very subtle thing because it was kind of dark, but when Miles was talking to Rio, his mom, her eyes were green. And I remember noticing earlier in the film that her eyes were brown. And this was just a very small change, but also a very subtle indicator that you were in a different universe because why would Miles' mother's eyes be a different color in his universe? But we now have an evil Miles Morales taking on the role of the Prowler, teamed up with his Uncle Aaron, and what is his motivation going to be in the next film? He seemed very interested to hear that Jefferson was alive in Miles' dimension, so the question is, does he want to try to pull some kind of an evil doppelganger and try to figure out how to get back to a world where his dad is alive, or... Did this version of Miles as the Prowler have some role to play in Jefferson's death? Just how corrupt is he? And does he maybe want to go wipe out Jefferson in Miles' dimension? Is there some kind of a personal grudge? Gwen has also put the band back together. I'm very happy that it looks like we're going to see Spider-Ham and Spider-Man Noir back in action in the next film. I do wonder, because I mentioned that I, the budget, which was reported $100 million, I think it's got to be higher, but the early reports are $100 million. I wonder if one of the reasons why the budget is a little bit lower is that they said, you know, we're going to write John Mulaney and Nicolas Cage out of this movie and we'll bring him back in the next movie and pay him for one movie instead of two. As many spider people as were in this film, I didn't really miss them that much, but I'm glad it does seem like we're going to be getting him back because it wouldn't feel right for Gwen to kind of get the band together to go rescue Miles if you're not getting the people from the first movie because they did all bond so much over the course of that film. 
I was trying to figure out how Hobie was able to get that bracelet to Gwen. And at first I thought it was his bracelet, but then watching the movie both the first and the second time when he leaves headquarters, he's basically like, peace out. I'm not going to deal with this anymore. He tosses his bracelet away as he goes through the portal. And I was like, well, how did he do that? But then the second time I looked and Gwen's bracelet, the one that Hobie leaves for her, leaves with uh, Captain Stacy, is very Hobie. It's very punk rock. When they're walking through that control room, right as we're meeting Miguel for the first time, Hobie keeps grabbing stuff. He's like grabbing stuff out of the, you know, drives out of the wall, little pieces of equipment, and you can see him putting stuff in his pockets. And I think basically he's scavenging technology to build his own, you know, bracelet to access the multiverse, which really that's the most punk rock thing ever is to say, you know what? I don't care about your rules. I'm going to DIY my own solution and then I'll jump to the multiverse whenever I want and I will fight the system. Like that is punk rock. That fits his character. That fits the theme of this character. And it seems like the defining event of the next movie is going to be ASM 90, which is a reference to Amazing Spider-Man number 90, which saw the death of Gwen Stacy's father, Captain Stacy. And it seems like Jefferson's fate is going to be hanging in the balance. And I think it is going to be very much a focus on how much of this is fate that you have to surrender to and how much of this is Miles Morales saying I'm breaking canon because this isn't my canon this is your canon and I'm gonna blaze my own trail I'm very excited to see that journey for him how he's gonna get out of this situation with his uncle Aaron and himself as the prowler and then just what they're gonna introduce in the next movie I mean there were some versions of Spider-Man uh, that were not in this film uh, like for example Japanese Spider-Man and I there's there absolutely going to introduce him. They have to put him in one of these movies. I feel like maybe they're saving him perhaps for something really cool in this third movie because the Japanese Spider-Man saga, that little chapter of the Spider-Verse is so interesting. Also with the MCU, are, are we going to see Tom Holland? Are we going to see any of the other past actors? Are we going to see Tom Hardy? The possibilities are literally endless because we're dealing with the entire Spider-Verse and I'm very excited. I love Spider-Man. For me, it was Batman and then Spider-Man was probably a close second right there along with Superman when I was growing up as far as my favorite comic book characters. So I am super excited to see what this next film has in store, what the conclusion is going to be, where the story is going to take us. And hey, we only have to wait less than a year because unless it gets pushed, it's on the schedule for next spring. What did you think of Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse? Are you excited for Beyond the Spider-Verse? Did you feel cheated by that to be continued ending? Or do you think it's just a fun way to keep fans hooked for the next film? Let me know down in the comments below. And as always, thank you so much for watching me here on the channel. Charts with Dan will be up tomorrow. The Flash review will be up on Tuesday. I'll have a review of Transformers Rise of the Beasts up probably on Thursday. And then we have streaming charts, which I haven't done for a while. Of course, any breaking news that might pop up, we could do a news episode. There's just so much going on right now. So stay tuned right here. Subscribe if you like what you see. If you're a subscriber, hit that bell so you can be notified when I upload a video. But most importantly, thanks for spending part of your day here with me. Until next time, stay safe, and I'll see you then. Bye. 